What red signifies is not a better, fairer wage for work. What red signifies is our lifetimes should be full of plenty and joy and time that we can um, devote to being farmers or writers or artists or machinists or whatever we want to do, that we combine our time to make the things that we need together. And we also have our own individual time to do the things that we want to do. That's what RED is. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hi, welcome everyone to our third Study and Struggle Critical Conversation. Our event is entitled Abolition Must Be Read. Huge thanks to Haymarket Books for hosting this event and for all their work on the back end to make this event tonight possible. We're also extremely appreciative um, to our captioner and our ASL interpretation team this evening. So thank you all. My name's Garrett Felber. I'm one of the organizers with Study and Struggle. Um, if you don't know much about us, we organize against criminalization and incarceration, incarceration in Mississippi through political education, mutual aid, and community organizing. Each fall, we put together a bilingual Spanish and English curriculum with discussion questions and reading materials and we also provide financial support to over 100 participants in radical study groups inside and outside prisons in Mississippi. We also make this curriculum fully available online for other study groups across the country and across the world to use as they see fit. Finally, we come together for online conversations like this one tonight hosted by Haymarket Books. For our fall curriculum in 2021, we have borrowed and augmented slightly Ruth Wilson Gilmore's argument that abolition is about presence, not absence. It has to be green, and in order to be green, it has to be red. And in order to be red, it has to be international. So for today, we're going to be tackling what it means for abolition to be red. And we're especially grateful to have Ruthie herself joining us tonight, along with Stevie Wilson in a few moments. Just so you all know what to expect from our format this evening, Stevie will be calling in from Camp Hill Prison in Pennsylvania. He will have three 15-minute chunks of time to call in. So please bear with us for those transitions and breaks. We'll also have time, we hope, at the end for a question and answer period. So please drop your questions in the chat as we go, and we'll try to get to them, especially before Stevie is forced to leave us this evening. Lastly, I want everyone to know about our final critical conversation, Abolition Must Be International, which will be December 1st at 7 p.m. with Jalil Muntakim, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, and Harsha Walia, as well as we hope a few comrades from inside who will be joining us through pre-recorded message. So with that, I'm gonna hand it over to Ruth Wilson-Gilmore, who I'm incredibly grateful for um, both giving us this wonderful framework for the curriculum this fall, um, and also for making it up till 
nearly midnight to join us this evening. So thank you, Ruthie. Thank you, uh, Garrett Felber, and thank you, everybody from Haymarket, all of the interpreters, the captioners, John behind the scenes, the entire team that makes this possible. I'm very grateful to be part of it. I thought maybe as we waited for Stevie to call us, I'd talk a little bit about this framework. Um, something that came to my mind uh, with a fair amount of clarity after I had been trying to pursue it for many years through all different kinds of organizing strategies, through writing, through thinking. So famously, a number of us in trying to fight a prison in California stumbled onto something we did not invent but really learned from using, and that is that environmental justice and anti-prison work go hand in hand. Similarly, in trying to fight against prisons and incarceration, we did not invent, but we stumbled onto the fact that working with workers, whether they were organized or disorganized, employed, unemployed, or workless, was something that went hand in hand with fighting against prisons. And certainly, as we were organizing in California, we learned because California is such a crossroads of the planet, that what we were doing was always in a fundamental way already international, and that the work that many of us had been trying to accomplish by making common cause, solidarity, projects, study, and struggle with comrades around the planet could both express lessons we had learned in California to the world and bring the lessons from the world to California because, in fact, as we think about it, abolition to be presence has got to be presence for the entire planet, whether we're going backyard by backyard or in some other way. As a result of, of thinking with so many people and learning from so many people for a long time, I had the opportunity in, I think it was 2019, feels like 200 years ago, before the pandemic, to um, talk with a very lively group of people in Los Angeles who were celebrating a huge victory against new jails that had been planned for that uh, county, and that we had over a 15-year campaign managed to defeat. At the same time, there were people in the audience who had been organizing for years to drop life without parole. At the same time, there were people in the audience who had been working for years to release aging people in prison. And finally, there were people who had been working for years, and this is multi-generational groups, who had been working solidly with, for example, California Coalition for Women Prisoners that is celebrating a very important anniversary this week on Friday. So with all of this liveliness in the room, it occurred to me to say those words. Abolition must be green. 
to be green, it must be red. And to be red, it must be international. So tonight, Stevie and I will have a conversation I'm grateful to be part of to talk about this question of red. What does it mean to be red? What is the relationship between people who are locked up and people in the free world when it comes to questions like labor, organized labor, fights over wages, the use of the social wage, which is to say all of the money we pay as taxes and fees and fines that could go and should go to things like housing, food, art, healthcare, jobs, support services, education, climate, climate, climate control those kinds of things. We'll talk about the sorts of organizing that has happened inside and outside, and some of the um, struggles that have occurred when understanding among well-meaning people on the outside doesn't really connect with understanding among people who are organizing for their lives on the inside how to work these problems through. I hope we'll talk about that. And finally, we'll talk a little bit about some of the uh, very specific uh, campaigns that have um, uh, occurred in prisons around the United States in recent years, particularly strikes, um, work strikes, but also hunger strikes. So these will, are also uh, quite possibly topics we will discuss if indeed Stevie manages to get through on the phone. All of this work is, as Garrett said in his introductory remarks, work that seeks to fight criminalization, which is a major, but not the only path to abolition. The path to abolition goes through every aspect of life. There is nobody and no form of life that is outside the imperative for abolition today. And as we pursue our conversation, I hope you in the audience will reflect on the difficulties and ideas that Stevie and I have a chance to discuss and share your Okay, I'm here. <laughs> can, can everyone hear me? Yes. Can you hear me? Hi. Okay. Hi, Stevie. How are you? I'm all right. How are you? I'm I want to say uh, thank you for uh, letting me be part of this event. I'm just uh, happy to be a part of it to discuss uh, some things with you, particularly around um, labor. I've been uh, incubating a couple questions. I've been thinking about some things um, here inside um, because I know that uh, people are trying to organize around this concept of prison slavery, and it's really not getting off the ground. Um, particularly where I'm at in Pennsylvania. 
And so I've been thinking about some of the ways that this uh, this concept is missing the mark, and and, and some reasons why it may not be resonating with people inside. And so uh, so that we can get to have some type of issue, we need to have a couple of issues. I think that we can work around and bring people inside uh, together and um, and create a more mass movement. You know, not just a couple guys in each prison doing things and talking about things, but actually getting uh, a significant amount of people behind the walls involved in our movement. So that's the things I've been thinking about. Well, can I ask you a question, Stevie? Go ahead. All right. You are one of the few people I know in the United States who is trying in a somewhat organized and systematic way to find out what people who are locked up do, what kinds of work people do and don't do, who they're working for if they're working, what the attraction is for people who don't have their freedom now to be able to work or to be able not to work. So could you talk to us a little bit about what your survey and research has shown so far? Okay. Um, I first, first want to say that the reason why the survey was done is because I was hearing a lot of things on the other side of the wall. I was reading some things from publications that just didn't lie with our reality, you know, um, behind the walls. And I think that was the case in Pennsylvania. I did not know if it was the case everywhere else, but I wanted to find out what was really happening behind the walls. I really wanted people to understand uh, the relationship that we have with labor behind the wall, uh, and so I was curious. I didn't want to. I didn't want to. This is the Pennsylvania State Correctional Institution, Camp Hill. This call is subject to recording and monitoring. Good. I, I didn't. I didn't want to assume anything, and so we came up with basically twenty some odd uh, questions for the first round of the survey, and. What I will tell you first and foremost is that I, some of the things that I felt uh, were confirmed was that most people don't work behind the walls. That's the first thing. Most of us don't work. Every place that um, we receive the survey from, between 30 and 35% of the population actually worked. And most of that was the reproductive labor of the prison. So they were like block workers, maintenance workers, and, you know, groundskeeping type of thing, kitchen workers and stuff like that. Um, there were very few opportunities where people were actually in correctional industries uh, or they were working for what we call a private company. That was kind of rare, you know. Uh, they were better paying jobs, but they were rare. And so uh, that's confirmed we already felt. And then the thing that surprised me the most was the different work regimens that they had around the country. Uh, they will look so different in Alabama than it does in Texas, than it does in Pennsylvania, than it does in Colorado, than it does in California. And so when we talk about labor behind the walls, I was like, wow, we just, we're not talking about one thing. We're talking about a lot of different, uh, you know, variations. And so therefore, when I thought about campaigns around labor, I realized that we had to have different campaigns. This is a call from Pennsylvania State Correctional Institution, Camp Hill. This call is subject to recording and monitoring. I found out different reasons why people were working. Um, there were, like, in, in Kentucky, I found out that uh, for every day you work, you were going to get a day or some off your sentence. So that's the incentive for people working. They don't get paid, you know, in, uh, they don't get paid in funds, but they get paid in time. They get their time back. 
you know, um, in Pennsylvania, we, we actually get paid funds. We don't get any good time earned time. Um, but I feel like people work, and some people, times people are not working for the money, they're working for some other reason, whether it's a good time or earned time, or whether it's because it gives them access to other materials that they can really make money with, or or because they can't actually, um, it's called getting legs, move around the prison and see other people and see other things. So look, I learned a lot about why people work also. Not just their work regimen, but why they work. And that was interesting. I, I, I want to definitely share that with the world because I want people to not think that labor looks the same all over uh, behind these walls. Um, and I think it's important that if you're doing uh, working with prisoners or you're working with incarcerated folks and you want to talk about labor in a particular site or region, you need to talk to the people there about what's happening um, and not assume that labor looks the same everywhere. You know, um, That was the biggest tip I'll, I'll take away from me. I hope that a lot of people are listening to us today, this evening, and that if this um, discussion is available online after our conversation, that people will consult it. Because this is an area of dispute that regularly comes up everywhere. I had a long debate with a young man this afternoon who just kept saying, what you say, Gilmore, is not true. What you say is not true. And what I said are things I learned from you a couple of weeks ago, Stevie, plus my own research, which seems to be true. And so what that tells us is that there is some um, way that people are, have convinced themselves that they have found in um, uh, slavery and uncompensated labor the magical kernel of all of prison. And if they can bust that open, the prison walls will come down. And I think what you have just helped us think is that isn't the case. I'm going to tell you, I'm going back to 2018, Colorado. You know, Colorado's state constitution mirrors the exception clause of the 13th Amendment of the United States Constitution. It mirrors it. And they removed the clause from their state constitution, and not a single person was freed from prison. Okay? So I don't understand why we think if change the law says about itself, that somehow the prison walls are going to fall down. That's not going to happen. And, and I think it's very important for them to understand that. I just think that some people benefit, maybe it's an argument, I don't know, maybe it's an argument they've gotten that got some traction because it has got traction in the mainstream media. And so people just don't want to let it go. But it's a false argument because the fact is that most prisoners do not work, okay? And they do not see themselves as part of the labor movement, okay? Most of us see this as a temporary thing. They see the work itself as a, as a hustle that leads to another hustle. Uh, and so it's like, really, you know, it's not it's not an issue that we can actually organize a large amount of prisoners around. Also, I've spoken before about the fact that there, you know, with 35, 30% of the people working behind the walls, that means there's a large labor uh, reserve pool behind the walls. And so the people who do work are not going to strike. They're not going to stop working because they fear that they can be replaced so easily. And they can be. They can be. And so in here, I was talking to uh, someone earlier about the concept of surplus people again. I'm talking about surplus beyond the walls. We have 
and, you know, 70% of the population is not working, and it's actually part of the general labor pool. And so, therefore, these people who are working are afraid to quit, are afraid to boycott, are afraid to strike, because they know nothing can be replaced so easily, you know? And there might be something they lose as far as getting home faster. So I just think this is an issue that's so complicated and hard to organize around. And even though we keep saying, oh, these national strikes took place, I, I said again, again, they weren't national because they happened all across the nation. They happened in certain spots. But secondly, they weren't successful. They weren't successful. Okay? People didn't stop working. The walls didn't go down. We didn't get any closer to freedom. And the thing for me, when I organized, I'm saying, listen, what can we do to move all of us closer to freedom? Stop focus on decarceration. Okay, and, and this issue is taking a lot of air out of the room. And it's like, what are we getting from this? How are we actually changing the material conditions of the people behind these walls? How are we getting people closer to freedom? And it's not happening. It's not. I think Colorado is a perfect example of the law was changed and people were not free from prison. Okay? Prison slavery is outlawed in Colorado, but they still have a whole bunch of people locked up. I mean, so I don't understand how they get around this issue, you know. It's, uh, there are other things that we could be doing uh, that I think would attract a lot more people behind the walls as far as fighting for rejuvenating uh, sentencing schemes, getting rid of parole boards, preemptive parole. These are things that, that will get us closer to freedom, all of us, and we all can get behind. So I just think... Um, you said, Stevie, you know, really caught my imagination because at the heart of the matter, what all of the people in prison and jail, and even those who are under home arrest with ankle shackles and so forth are doing is they are, by fact of being unfree, having the time, which is their lifetime, extracted from them, and then that time is turned into money by the people who work for the prison service, by the people who sell things to the prison, and so on and so forth. That it's all about time. It's why I think they're working to get their time back, some of these people, because that's what they've stolen from them. So exactly. That's for every day I work, I get a, I get a day off my sentence. So and I say, look, if my ancestors were brought here, right, as slaves to work and die, but I say, we weren't brought in prison to work and die. We're here. There's a reason why we're here that's not to work, okay? And the thing, the thing that's being taken from us is time, and, and that's why so many people do work, because they, they get to earn it back. They get to earn it back if they work. They get, you know, a day off, a day for a day. Thank you for using Securus. Goodbye. Thank you, interpreters, for doing such a great, great job. And um, that was actually a good time for us to pause. I hope Stevie will be right back. But everybody, think about the fact that what we're talking about is time. 
time extracted from people's lives, time that's extracted from people's lives turned into money. And also, this comes back to the red issue. What red signifies is not a better, fairer wage for work. What red signifies is our lifetimes should be full of plenty and joy and time that we can um, devote to being farmers or writers or artists or machinists or whatever we want to do, that we combine our time to make the things that we need together. And we also have our own individual time to do the things that we want to do. That's what red is. A fair wage is part of it, but it's not it. And this is where I think Stevie's research so clearly has taken us. Is he back yet? No. Um, Stevie gave us two examples that I think are um, very good for us to reflect on and try to think with. The example of people who are incarcerated in Kentucky, who are paid with time for their work, and as Stevie put it, they're earning their time back. They're getting their time or their life back. And for us to think about what that means, as well as the events that unfolded in Colorado, where in the wake, I assume, of the uprisings of, of 2020, Colorado removed slavery from the Constitution, and lo and behold, no one got to leave prison and go home. So we see that the forces that are concentrating so many people in prison and jail are different forces from those that many people meaning well consistently um, and repeatedly put forward, that somehow it has something to do with labor. Let's do one of the clips. Let's listen okay. to Stevie. Um, let's do the first one. How can we use an anti-capitalist critique to build a broad-based coalition to abolish police and prisons? Let's listen to what Stevie has to say. First question is, how can we use an anti-capitalist critique to build a broad-based coalition to abolish police and prisons? You know, capitalism is responsible for so much misery in our world. And also we are turning it on its head by coming together as we are in this time, in this way. So let's hope that our contradictory tendencies are going to be successful. Okay. Um, this is a question I'm always asking because I don't feel that we've actually done enough to connect the dots between capitalism and the conditions uh, that, that prisons are, are living under. Um, inside of here, um, inside of prison, most people don't have a problem with capitalism. They can't see the connection between what's going on and capitalism. So I'm really, I've been struggling for the last year, year and a half, trying to get prisoners to see that capitalism is a problem. Um, and, and one of the problems that we have in Pennsylvania is that the Department of Corrections uh, had this line 
where they're kind of impressing upon us, trying to brainwash us to thinking the only reason why we're in prison is because we weren't good patriarchs, we weren't good capitalists. So if we become better capitalists and better patriarchs, this is an immense prison, obviously, we will be successful out in the world. So guys are actually in here saying things like they're for black capitalism. And that just blows my mind because capitalism is anti-black. So I'm like, what do you mean black capitalism? But this is what they think. And so I understood, I've been really struggling the last year and a half trying to figure out how we can connect capitalism to the suffering that people are undergoing in this country, in this world. Um, Because in here, many people see capitalism as natural and inevitable. There is no other way. And so I just think that we have to do a lot more work to show that capitalism is a problem and has been the problem. Um, one of the things that happened just recently is a friend of mine sent um, a zine in on racial capitalism. Really good zine. It was a comic. And as soon as I got on the block, some young guys saw it because they like comics, and they read it. And not only did the young guy read it, but he gave it to a cellmate, and he read it. And you know, I've actually copied it quite a few times here, and I'm passing it out on the compound. But the young man came back to me and said, we need more of this. He said, because this is going to capture people's attention because the format, it was a comic. Um, I just did the same thing with Maroon Comics, okay? And I uh, gave that out to people. People are really are attracted to these things. And so if we want to connect with the masses and want to connect with people inside and really talk about capitalism and, and the reason why we are in the situation we're in, then we need to have materials that's accessible to them, that, and especially young people. Um, and so I think that uh, we have to do a better job, a much better job of, of – Relating to the relating to the people, why think the way they are and how capitalism has played a role in this, and so um, I just think that right now it's kind of hard to organize around the anti-capitalism in, inside the prison because people will look at you like, what do you mean? Like it's only capitalism. <laughs> so you say anti-capitalism, they look at you like you're crazy, but. Um, because they think it's inevitable. Like I said, it knows it's natural. But we can do a better job. We can do a much better job if we uh, get the materials in and we get them in a format. Because like I said, this, this zine on racial capitalism was amazing um, and people are passing it out and people are really taking to it and we're having discussions around it. And so I know that the, 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 the excitement is there and the desire to learn is there, but we just have the materials so that we can make these connections for them. So I just think uh, it's a question that I'm actually asking, how can we do this? How can we, you know, connect the movement and make a better, make a broad-based movement off, you know, anti-capitalism? We can't even talk about anti-capitalism inside the prison. You know, it's just getting crazy. And I'm gonna tell you something else too, though. I, I realized that unlike the '60s and the '70s, right, when you have someone like George Jackson is writing about capitalism and he's breaking it down, like he's really breaking it down. You know, you have someone like Yaki, when Yaki was in prison, Yaki was breaking it down. And so they weren't just really against capitalism. They were actually giving you an analysis and they were actually put piecing it together, connecting the dots for people. Well, we don't have that type of analysis coming from behind the walls anymore. We have people who are actually railing against capitalism. Yes, all capitalism, imperialism, blah, blah, all these isms, but they're not actually telling the people how that is affecting their lives, how that is responsible for the suffering that's going on. And so it's one thing to complain about something, but it's another thing to explain to people and to give them analysis that you can use and say, look, this is, this is why things are so fucked up in my neighborhood. 
These are so this is why, you know, things are so fucked up in my school. You know, this is this is this is what we have to do. You know, we have to make this connection for people. And we have to um not just reel against capitalism or imperialism, you know, but actually break it down for people and connect the dots. Okay. Okay. I completely uh, follow you in everything that you said, Stevie. And one of the things that uh, comes to mind is to ask ourselves how it was that 50 years ago, people who were locked up were engaged in these analyses, were, as you put it, breaking it down. We know about George Jackson, but the fact is there were study groups, study and struggle groups, in prisons all over the United States. Um, of course, this was at a time when there were maybe, oh, I don't know, maybe 20,000 people in prison in the United in, in California when George Jackson was, was writing. And the number of people in prison throughout the United States was quite small compared to now. So if we think then about what has transpired over the intervening 50 or 60 years, we start to maybe get a glimmer of why it is that people are, if aware of capitalism as something not natural or inevitable, are more likely to rail against it than to analyze it and, as you say, connect the dots. Maybe what we need is um, not only more zines like the one you talked about coming from my hometown, New Haven, inside, but also perhaps in study groups inside, people developing zines, taking some of the ideas that seem at first to be too um, abstract or dense, and then ask themselves some questions. How does this relate to my school, my home, my life, my experience, my being here inside talking with the rest of you? And it might be that some kind of zine production, if that could happen inside, which I'm not altogether sure it could happen, would also help to put the weight back into the analysis that people like you clearly have and many other people have and have had uh, through the long period of the growth of prisons in the United States, but can do so in such a way that people who at the moment are impatient of certain kinds of difficulty in analysis will see themselves in the analysis and be more likely to carry it forward into their own everyday thinking and work. I forgot that we don't actually have Stevie on the other end to talk with us. Um, what, something that he and I did discuss uh, for a while when we talked a few weeks ago was how there are some aspects of the analysis of capitalism that are very straightforward um, for, in Stevie's experience, for him and his comrades inside to get a handle on and talk about and understand. 
So for example, for people who are locked up to think about themselves as part of masses of people who are surplus to the requirements of the political economy on the outside makes sense. Or for people to think about how the land where the prisons are obviously could have been used for something else, for food, for housing, for you name it, for schools, but it was used to build prisons. So it's easy to understand, ah, surplus land, turn to the to incarceration. But Stevie tells me when, for example, in my book, I start to talk about money capital being surplus, people say, what has that even got to do with me? So the question that I put back is, how might we figure out a way to ground an abstract analysis in the um, experience of people who are trying to figure things out so that their analysis gets bigger and better and stronger as Stevie and his comrades have managed to do, and as all of the comrades in Mississippi have managed to do as part of study and struggle. All right, so, um, yeah, I wanted to record these questions because um, our phone, like I said, our phone system has been in and out all day, and I didn't want to miss the opportunity to ask Ruthie a couple of questions. And, um, and, and the first one is that I wanted Ruthie to talk about the role of the scholar in our movement. Uh, what did she feel is the role of the scholar in our movement? I also want to talk about the role of the imprisoned in our movement. I wanted to hear uh, her comments about that, those two questions. I wanted to uh, ask Ruthie how she defines solidarity. How would she define solidarity? Um, and so okay, I, wanted, I wanted to ask that. Also, I wanted to ask, um, because I know Ruthie has been in, in Europe, okay. right? We and might, I've been reading some works from, let, let from me. French abolitionists. Okay? And so I wanted to ask Ruthie, what could we here in the United States learn about abolition from uh, the European abolitionist movement? Uh, because so much of our movement is U.S. centric. Right? And so um, what I tend to be exposed to outside of the U.S. tend to be things that are happening in the global, as far as in South America. I, um, I read some things from South America usually, but I don't really hear too much about what's happening as far as abolition is concerned in Europe. Um, but I have been French, some French writers, um, some French abolitionists, and so I was interested in what's going on over there and uh, what she feels we could learn from their movement and their strategy, their tactics over there. Um, and I think that might be it. I'm looking at my list here. <laughs> yeah, so that, that, that's it. Those are the questions I have. Oh, and I, I'm letting you know that just in case we don't get to speak live, um, she still owes me a Chester story. <laughs> but thank you. All right. Okay. Five All right. questions. All right. I want to explain to you. Um, Okay. All right. Here we go. Um, first question, what is the role of the scholar? 
The role of any scholar, whether they're working at an academic institution, locked up inside in an institution of total control like a prison, or studying and learning things on their own while having a day job like um, working for the post office, is to learn how things work and share that learning in the best way they can. And when I say the best way they can, I don't mean that every scholar is required to um, say, imitate a writing style that would be the same as what they use in, let's say, the New York Daily News or a, a tabloid newspaper. Scholars figure things out and they say things the best way they can, and they put the material out, what they've learned out for other people to use and build from or tear down because it's wrong and do something else with. So the role of the scholar is to figure things out and to share what they figured out. It isn't above or below the role of anybody else involved in a social movement. Now, one of the things that I like to do, and I am a card-carrying scholar, is to figure things out and then find as many different ways as I can to say the same thing. So at the beginning of our um, conversation today, I talked about the framing that this year's study and struggle curriculum is following, the notion, the imperative actually, for me, that abolition must be green, to be green it must be red, to be red it must be international. Now those words, which are fairly compact, are words that I researched and learned about either to put together a political campaign or to put together a scholarly piece of work. And the difference between those two things for me is really minimal. And how I described and analyzed and made sense of things like environmental justice, uh, the fight for um, safe working conditions and safe work less conditions for people, fight for education, fight against capitalism. I've said in many, many different ways. And it's been very exciting for me and I think is exciting for scholars like you, Stevie, and scholars like Garrett and others to find our work taken up in places and by people we might never have met or known. That, and that's the role of the scholar. Make the work, throw it out there, see what people can do with it. The role of the scholar also, I think importantly, is to insist when people are pursuing um, uh, paths that will not lead to freedom to say, have you considered this? Have you considered this? 
have you considered this? I know for a fact, I'm 71, pushing 72, that nobody becomes suddenly um, uh, better at analysis and organizing by having someone get in their face and say, you are wrong. Nobody does, although I was raised by a man who I worshiped to this day, who used to tell me how frequently I was wrong. So that's the exception that proves the rule. Holding up, however, examples of where misguided pursuits of freedom might tragically lead or might frustratingly not lead is something a scholar can do. Again, it's not only a scholar who can do it, but that is part of the scholar's task. The role of the imprisoned, second question, many roles to be, to show and insist on the various ways that that those who are locked up experience the extraction of time, however it is people who are locked up want to talk about it, and figure out how solidarity can work inside as well as through the walls, just as people who organize on the outside, scholars and not scholars, should figure out what solidarity is and how it can work through the walls. One of the things that Stevie and I talked about for a while that I've learned from many, 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 many years of talking with people who have been locked up, of reading things written by people who were locked up, locked up in prisons, locked up in concentration camps, locked up in um, military occupations, locked up in all kinds of ways. People who have been locked up in the occupation of the West Bank and Palestine now for um, uh, more than 70 years. What I learn from people who have been locked up resonates with what I know about being alive in general. And that is experience is not the same as consciousness. Experience tells us many, many things that are true enough, but it's in testing the relationship of one's experience with another and another in the process of building solidarity that produces the consciousness we need to free ourselves collectively as against to make prison or whatever aspect of life we're trying to change just a little bit better and less deadly. Consciousness, in fact, is what I think study and struggle is all about. It's the kind of consciousness that um, people like Amilcar Cabral and the uh, Independent Party for the Independent, excuse me, the African Party for the Independence of Guinea-Bissau and Cabo Verde, 
put into motion in the pursuit of their long, 13 years long revolution against colonial domination by Portugal in order to create the conditions for consciousness to flourish and develop, they created schools that were built and staffed and put into motion as soon as a zone in that country was liberated. So during the war, every year, a school somewhere was established and staffed by people who were both soldiers and teachers or otherwise had dual or triple roles in that revolution. The work of becoming free, in other words, is the work of making solidarity. And my definition of solidarity, which is the third question you asked me, Garrett, uh, excuse me, Stevie, is mutual dependence. That solidarity means we become dependent on one another. Indeed, it's the opposite of that rugged individualist independence that people who have um, come of age in the United States and in the US cultural system, the political economy of capitalist culture has a form that insists we are all lone individuals on the planet. This makes no sense to me. There are seven and a half billion people on the planet. We ought to be dependent on each other rather than trying to figure out how to be independent of each other. But when I say solidarity is dependence, it means that there has to be some kind of mutually agreed on, which is to say constantly renewed sense of dependence so that dependence doesn't become domination or being dominated, that we hang from each other rather than some hang from others. It's easy in a way to think about solidarity and dependence through thinking about power and difference, not in a fatal way, but rather in the way that I like to describe thus. My best friend has power over me. He makes me happy in a way I cannot make myself happy. I am dependent on him. Indeed, we are dependent on each other. That the power is not a dominating power. It is not a cruel power. It is not a dismissive or controlling power. It's the kind of power that makes the social possible. So that is how I define solidarity. I think the next question should I continue? Okay, the next question has to do with learning from the abolitionist movement in Europe. Um, I don't actually know which French abolitionists Stevie was referring to. I've talked with 
a number of people in France and around Europe over the years. And in fact, there's been a lot of effort in recent years for people um, who are involved in mostly anti-racist, anti-police brutality, um, uh, pro-migrant work, that much more than prisons. So it's police, migration, brutality. And then related things, housing, um, uh, safety, uh, community. Such people have been trying to link their struggles across the various countries that add up to Europe. So, for example, Vanessa Eileen Thompson has been organizing with many people in Germany and Switzerland, as have others in Germany, been organizing with people there and in Belgium and the Netherlands that are people around France who have been organizing uh, throughout France. But there's a whole lot of organizing happening both in the big cities and then along the southern coast, because so many long distance migrants are trying to cross the Mediterranean to get to a place where there is more um, um, uh, the opportunity for a secure wage, even if in a very marginalized way. Here in Portugal, there is a lot of struggle going on around housing, education, police brutality. We just recently have started a campaign because a young man died in custody recently. He was only 23 years old. It would be equally tragic where he's 73 years old. And um, he was, he was uh, locked in the prison here in Lisbon. So there was a major demonstration about that. But here, as is true in many other parts of Europe, a lot of the abolition work is like the abolition work, for example, in the United States in the 18th and 19th century, was focused on not so much directly on the thing to be fought as on the conditions of everyday life that would make fighting that thing certain, the thing to be fought, more certain to go away. Right. So if people have place to live, are not worried about money, are not worried about deportation, are not worried about all of the things that make life um, uh, full of anxiety and full of vulnerabilities, then the need for police starts to melt away. If People are able to live in communities not harassed by police that have um, decent schooling, decent health care and so forth. Again, the organized violence of police or border patrol um, becomes less apparent as a need for the social order. So the abolitionists are working in all of those areas in the effort to push back the, what seems to be so normal in terms of massive police forces, massive border forces, and so forth. I think I just got a note about something. 
Are we ready? Okay, and thank you again. I wanna thank everybody who is doing the interpretation. It is so beautiful. I love to be able to watch it and I should learn to read. So the last question was about Chester. So this, we're gonna wrap up. This is the last thing I'm gonna talk about. Um, so Stevie is from a place in Pennsylvania called Chester. It's a town that has uh, experienced um, decades and decades and decades and decades of um, the effects of deindustrialization from the mid 1960s forward. Uh, it's a place that had in the 1960s a little kind of knot of uh, radical um, black internationalists who were friendly to, if not within the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense and other people who organized themselves there as well. And those people, you know, like my own father, had very ordinary working class jobs. That's what they did in the daytime. They went and they did their working class jobs and the rest of their time, they organized, they um, promoted ideas, they figured out how to achieve political, uh, achieve things in political struggle. All right. So here's my story about me in Chester. I went to college in Pennsylvania for one year, one very long, sad year at Swarthmore College in a very leafy posh suburb of Philadelphia, all trees and pretty buildings. And I was unhappy and cried the entire year. This was 1968, 69. There were 40 black students at this school that had maybe 1,200 students, a quite small school. So we students started um, to uh, organize ourselves, we the black students started to organize ourselves to demand, this was 1968, that Swarthmore College find and admit and enroll more black students. Very straightforward, right? 1968, the world was on fire and we were uh, enraged. The Dean of Admissions decided to write up the um, academic profiles of the 40 students, 40 of us, and hand out the, our academic profiles, our SAT scores, our high school GPA, what we had studied and so forth, gave it to everybody at the entire college. So people got up one morning and found these profiles of the 40 black students in their mailboxes, all the students. And the Dean's argument was, these are the very best black people on the planet and they are not that good. So clearly we can't go any deeper and admit one more black student, much less what these students are demanding. So, we decided to organize and fight. 
We planned and we talked and we talked and we planned and we argued. We studied and struggled. We did. We spent a lot of time trying to figure out what to do. And we're looking at what was happening in uh, campus upheavals and in the streets around the country. And remember, this was 1968. So Martin Luther King was assassinated in in April and Bobby Kennedy in June. And there were many assassinations um, happening all the time. And we decided we had to do something dramatic. We couldn't have a press conference to try to resolve our, our, our problem. So we decided to take over the admissions office and we did. We went in all prepared after many, 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 many months of planning, uh, detailed planning, uh, swearing people to secrecy, telling people who decided they didn't want to be part of it, that was fine, but they couldn't um, uh, tell on us. We had solidarity and a small group of us took over the admissions office. So this Dean of Admissions, who I was telling you about very, uh, self-sacrificingly came up to us and said, you can keep me here, but let everybody else go. And we said, we don't want any of you, all of you get out of here. So we threw everybody out of the office, chained ourselves in, and then laid siege to the entire school. Since the school is a Quaker school, they stopped everything um, that they would ordinarily be doing in order to meet in the Quaker meeting uh, way that Quakers do to discuss and discuss and discuss and reflect and discuss and figure out what they wanted to do about what from then until now is called the crisis. During the crisis, during our occupation of the admissions office, I'll tell you this, because I told you about my father. My parents drove from New Haven, Connecticut, down to Swarthmore, Pennsylvania, to do political education with us. So they arrived at Swarthmore, and we had to help them climb in the window of the building where we were were holed up and my dad run, ran some um, uh, political education workshops. My mother, who was also an activist, was as well very shy. So she kind of hung back and did some other things uh, with the group. And at one point, the group decided to delegate to, delegate to my father the authority to speak on our behalf because he was used to these kinds of clowns. And off we went to find the president of the college and we found him and he wouldn't talk to us. We didn't exchange words. He was just preoccupied or rude. Depends on your point of view. My parents left. We stayed in the office. Lots of uproar. And then a tragedy struck. The president of the college died. He died suddenly. He had a heart attack. He was a young man. He was in his 40s and he died. So a rumor spread around the campus that we had been uh, taunting and harassing him and watched him die. We, nobody was with him. He was by himself. It's a terrible way to die. Um, and there we were locked in the admissions office at Swarthmore College out in that bucolic, leafy, posh suburb, afraid, because that's where we were. 
And we were standing in the window of the admissions office looking out and there's a circular driveway behind the main hall there called Parish Hall. And it was evening, it was January, it was evening. And suddenly a bunch of cars came slowly up the drive. And there was, I don't know, three cars, maybe four. And the car doors opened and there were some brothers in dashikis standing outside the car doors, just looking up at us. And we knew. We knew. So we packed up, we cleaned up the mat, the office, we rushed out, we got in the cars, they drove us to Chester, Pennsylvania, where they put us up in a house, this house that accommodated all of us. We're still not sure how it happened. There was no furniture, but there was a piano. So we sang a lot. And we spent some days there trying to figure out what our next thing would be. And the guys would come around once a day, bring us some food, make sure we were okay. Otherwise, pretty much left us alone. And then another tragedy struck. Somebody had gone and gotten the newspaper, the New York Times. You know, we were a bunch of nerds, so we read the New York Times. And sitting reading the paper on, I guess it was January 20th, 1969, and I turned a page and I learned reading the newspaper that my cousin, who was like as close to me, if I said he was my brother, you would understand better, had been killed in Los Angeles. He was a member of the Black Panther Party. And COINTELPRO had started a war between the Panthers and the United Slaves. And my cousin had been killed. So I read about that in the newspaper. So the people in Chester looked after me and took care of me and eventually got me to a place where I could take a train and go home and be with my family so that we can mourn. And that is my story about Chester. Chester saved me twice. Thank you so much for that, Ruthie. Um, so I think what we're gonna do is just play Stevie's last clip about what, to my question, what makes him feel um, optimistic about the movement for abolition today. And then maybe we'll throw that to you for a final closeout. And thank you, you're doing the Lord's work. <laughs> what is one thing that makes you optimistic about where the abolitionist movement is today and what's one thing that troubles you? Uh, the youth, I really, um, the youth, really the energy, um, the level of understanding that they have. Um, the fact that it's, uh, the, the movement today you see is young people you see that they're not um, they're not stuck on this this head patriarchy thing either. Like you see queer and trans folk involved. You see diversity as far as you really see diversity in the movement, and especially amongst young people. Um, and so I just feel like their energy they're not going to be bullshitted. You know what I mean? They're not going to be demobilized. They have no problem standing up to power, which is amazing to me. You know, it's amazing to me. And I always tell people when I hear young guys answer, "You guys are always waiting for old folks to do something for you." I said, "Well, listen." I said, Fred Hampton was 21 when they murdered him. You know, I talk about how old was Huey Norton when they started the Black Panthers. You know, I talk about how old was Malcolm and Mar how old was Martin at the Montgomery 
boss boy count. Boy count, 26. You know, you talk about how Malcolm was young. You know, you keep telling us, don't wait for the old folks, because we sit around. Wait, y'all got to do this. You know, you got to do this. So I think it's important. The other thing, I, I, the flip side of that is that even in here, I find it troubling because we don't engage the youth here like we need to. Um, there's this idea that, especially around young black and brown males, that they're dangerous, they're out of control, and we're socialized to fear them. So even in prison, you have a lot of guys like, oh, the young boys are crazy, you don't want to talk to them, and not realizing that these younger guys actually are the key. They are the key. You know what I mean? And so we have to be able to talk to them and engage them um, and spend time with them, you know, um, and build with them. And so I think the, the flip side is for me is that inside the prisons, I don't see a lot of people engaging the youth and listening to them. We will, They will talk to the youth, but not with the youth. You know what I mean? They want to direct them and guide them to this, but they're not listening to what the youth have to say. And they have things to say. And, they, and let's say they teach me every day. I learn something from a young person. Like, well, are you serious? I didn't know that. I didn't know that. And their perspective is different. I'm older. So my perspective is, is different than theirs. And I'm learning things from them. Like why certain things happen. I'm not out in the streets. I don't, I'm not out hanging out in the corners. I'm not out in the neighborhoods that they're in. And so I'm learning what happened there and why things happened from their perspective. And it's very different from what, you know, the PIC is going to tell you or what the media is going to tell you, you know, or the DA is going to tell you. So it's important to listen to the young people. I mean, because when you keep saying those who are closest to the problem are closest to the solution, right? Well, they are living in the problem. They're living in it and they can tell us some things. And so it's about listening to the youth also. And that's, I guess, so one thing I'm excited about the youth, but at the same time, I'm kind of concerned about how we're not engaging the youth really like we need to you know so yeah so ruthie we'll just close with the same question to you what's something that makes you optimistic and what's something that troubles you something that makes me optimistic is the incredible uh uh connectivity that i see between and among people all around the world now that perhaps became more apparent with covid but i also think covid produced this uh this solidarity so for example i've been working with nurses um, the National Nurses United. And their resolutions from their um, uh, annual conference in September were amazing, I mean, or October, were amazing. The resolutions covered everything, including police and prisons, everything. They did not stay in the narrow, I'm a healthcare worker and therefore can only speak to issues that are bread and butter healthcare worker issues. Similarly, I've been talking with people um, in India who have figured out a variety of ways to um, uh, make it possible for people to have uh, lives that are not ruined by the economic and political upheavals of rising fascism on the one hand, um, the the terror of COVID on the other, and the ongoing wars that are constantly produced by those that have the equipment to wage them. I'm finally um, encouraged that, as I was saying, is the case here in Europe and certainly uh, the case with my comrades uh, throughout the continent of Africa and beyond. People are 
building, building, building connections, trying to figure out how to um, uh, develop and enhance the kind of solidarity we need to make the world we want into uh, the world we need into the world, excuse me, the world we want into the world we need, all of these things. So all this internationalism has got my heart big and my mind on fire. One of the things that concerns me is the, um, the best way I can put it is, is this way. People get really excited for good reason when they, when we, I'll make, I'll use we statements, when we come upon something that seems to explain a problem, I get very excited and say, now I got it, I got it, I see the problem. But then, as it was the case with um, slavery that we discussed about an hour ago in prison, people have a hard time stepping away from that explanation when different kinds of evidence and understanding become available to use. And that really worries me. It worries me because um, I, I know it takes a while to change how we think about things. It's certainly, I could tell many stories about my own um, constantly developing consciousness. But it's also true that I think many people of all ages have a habit of reciting what we think is right as though the words are themselves magical enough to do the work that actually organizing and rehearsing the revolution requires. So excited, concerned, but I'm always full of hope. Thank you so much. I think we'll um, we'll close with that. And I just want on behalf of all the study and struggle organizers and everyone here tonight. And I know Stevie, when I share this with him, will be um, tremendously sad that he couldn't participate more, but very grateful for your time and thoughts. So thank you, everyone. Thank you, Garrett. Thank you, everybody. Have a lovely evening. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.